You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. Now, Savage has come out with a new model, and that model is the 110 Ultralight. At under six pounds, the 110 Ultralight is designed to combat elevation and the elements while maintaining the performance of a factory blueprinted Savage 110 action. This comes in a variety of calibers. It has a gray AccuFinish stock with adjustable comb height. This is an awesome rifle, and uh, basically Savage is at it again. These guys have done amazing things in the past, and now they're doing amazing things in the future. If you want to find out more information about the 110 Ultralight, visit SavageArms.com. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of time plus 1% of money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and money back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is Episode 2. Now, before I get into today's guest, I want to take a quick second to talk about a mistake that I made um, during the first episode. Now, when speaking about 2% for Conservation's website, I made the mistake of saying that it is fishandwildlife.com when it is in fact fishandwildlife.org. So for any of you that were trying to find 2% for Conservation and you couldn't figure out why you didn't have the right website... I apologize for that. So again, you can find 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. All right, now let's talk about today's guest. Um, Today I am joined by Mark Haslam. And for any of you out there who follow along with QDMA are probably familiar with Mark's name. Now, Mark and his family received some recognition this year for some work that they have done on their property in South Carolina. Now, What's interesting about the work that they've done there is you take the average hunter uh, like myself and, and likely many of you listeners and think about the, the habitat improvement that we're doing on, on our property. Um, you know, and I'm thinking of anywhere in the 10 to 15 acres up to maybe two to 300 acres. Well, multiply that by about 10 and you have um, the size property that Mark and his family are working with um, and what they've been able to do and what they've been able to do there over the past uh, 14 years since acquiring this land uh, is really remarkable. Um, We talk about the different types of habitat improvement that they've done there, um, how they didn't really have a whole lot of experience at all with habitat improvement and wildlife uh, management prior to purchasing this this piece of property uh, and where it's at now. Uh, and one of the things that I found really interesting um, about speaking with Mark was not only what they're doing um, in terms of conservation and, and habitat improvement on their land, but almost just as importantly, what they're doing to uh, share the hunt and new hunter recruitment, um, bringing in people um, who have never hunted before onto their property and, and giving them um, proper training uh, and understanding of firearms uh, and then taking them out for their first hunt, um, which I think is is just awesome to be able to get um, new people involved um, into the outdoors and into hunting. 
So this is just a, it's, it's a really good episode and I really enjoyed talking with Mark. So take a listen. Hope you guys enjoy. Three, two. All right. I am on the phone with Mark Haslam from Savannah, Georgia. Mark, how is it, how's it going today? I'm doing very well, Marcus. Uh, just in the house here with my wife and two young kids just surviving right now. Yeah, I think I think everyone's kind of in that same boat. I'm uh we've exchanged a few emails prior to uh to jumping on <clears throat> on this call today and I have two young kids who are right around the same age as yours. Um so thankfully my wife takes them out of the house <laughs> when I have to record because this microphone's so sensitive it picks up everything. I understand. We uh my eight month old boy is taking a nap and we're, my wife's trying to get my three year old girl down for a nap now. So, um, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So before we kind of jump into things, Mark here, I would like to know a little bit about your upbringing in terms of the outdoors and conservation and, and find out what it was that, um, kind of sparked your love for the outdoors. I mean, were you introduced to that at an early age or did you pick it up later in life? I was introduced uh, to hunting in the outdoors um, at, at a young age. I can remember being in a kindergarten, um, going with my father, grandfather, uh, different family members out in the field hunting. Um, grew up in a hunting club that my father and some of his friends put together, uh, low country, South Carolina. Um, and at a very early age, was kind of brought into that QDM model of basically letting um, young bucks walk that type of thing. But growing up, growing up in a hunting club, it's a little bit different, um, perspective as far as hunting. Uh, you know, we had work days and stuff like that, but no, we weren't doing as much conservation type work, um, in that scenario. So for me, kind of going to that next level that some people talk about as far as hunters, uh, was probably five to six years ago, uh, after we'd had our current farm, for a number of years, kind of got it to a certain level. And then I kind of started to kind of, I started to see the big picture as far as habitat work and how that correlated into herd management, wildlife management, um, and just trying to bring our property to the, to, to the next level. Um, and kind of was out of that stage of just trying to, I was out of the stage of, as a hunter, um, was all about how many deer I could kill or how, how many deer I could put in the freezer as more as to uh, the quality hunting and habitat. Right. So would you say that when you first started or when you were first introduced to the outdoors that it was uh, that it was hunting? Uh, I mean, was it big game hunting in terms of, I guess, whitetail? Um, or was it, you know, upland type hunting? Um, it, what exactly was it? It was mostly whitetail. Whitetail, uh, still hunting, um, uh, you know, ladder stands, tower stands. Um, we did, did, did a lot of freshwater fishing, a lot of freshwater fishing. Um, I didn't start, um, duck hunting until I was in college and did not start, uh, upland hunting probably about high school. Okay. Um, and really recently got into turkey hunting, uh, past four or five years, um, started to pick more up at the farm and my father was a CPA. So turkey season really kind of disrupted his tax season. So, sure. yeah. um, I did not grow up turkey hunting. Okay. So flag, let's flash forward. You started, you started off whitetail hunting, um, you know, at a young age, um, some other small game hunting as well. And then when we had spoke before 2006, your family acquired a farm. And this is, this is a very interesting, um, I guess, story because you have this huge chunk of land uh, in South Carolina, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, that's correct. Okay. A huge chunk of land in South Carolina. And when I say huge, I mean, it's what, 1,900 acres, I believe you had told me? That's right. It's 1,900. Uh, we first, the, the first piece that we acquired was about 800. Um, and then we added on to it from the sides and uh, added the second piece, uh, just kind of just around, around the corner down the road. Now you, so you've had it for about 14 years now. And I'd imagine that even when you acquired the first chunk of land that you said it was about 800 acres, I mean, that's such a, a large piece of land. I mean, how are you able to kind of see 
what you want the land to become, you know, from the onset, you know, I'm sure you guys have some plans or some ideas. Uh, I mean, what did, what did that whole planning phase look like? Early on, um, one, we didn't really know what to do for the most part, except for that hunting club type model. Cause we, we were in that club up until 2005, up until we, uh, purchased this, purchased the farm. So we were basically, we were fortunate to where, um, maybe 20, 20, 25% is in agricultural fields that we lease out to a farmer and they rotate between cotton, peanuts, soybeans, and corn. So we had a lot of, uh, food sources that way. Early on, we were just simply hunting roads and fire breaks. Um, we, within a year or two, we purchased, uh, our first tractor and then, it, you know, I was on a tractor for the first time doing harrowing and planting food plots. And it, there, there was a big learning curve. We didn't do much to the timber for a couple of years. We took it very slow to answer your question. We didn't really jump right into it. Just took it very slow um, and let it evolve naturally as far as what we wanted to do. Um, had got some really good advice from a lot of friends that own property as far as what to do, what not to do. Now, did you guys bring in any, let's say, land specialists or anything like that to kind of give you better ideas of what you could do to improve habitat on the uh, on the farm? We we did bring some land specialists in after a while. Uh, a couple of years ago, we we started to bring some in. We we had a forester that um, helped us guide along, helped us along the way as far as the timber management and. Some foresters will, you know, want to cut every tree and, you know, plant everything in pine trees. And, and you can find some that really have a good wildlife background. And they can, uh, it takes a while to kind of find a good one that could help manage the forest for the wildlife and the timber production. Because most of our timber is planted pines. Okay. So a big, a, a big portion of it is really a, a, tr- a tree farm. And then we've got some leased ag fields, and there's a good amount of um, uh, hardwoods that are kind of sprinkled through the pine trees and then also around the buffers, the fields, and different bottoms. Okay. Now, I mean, when you purchased this, did you guys have this, you know, 10, 15-year plan of what you wanted to accomplish? Or was it, I don't want to say trial by fire, but you wanted to kind of take things as they come and you know, little projects here, you know, kind of plan out two years instead of maybe 10 years. That's correct. It was just taken very slow um, and just let it evolve. Try to figure it out. Um, I mean, we were just trying to get some deer stands up, get some feeders up and had this mindset that because of the location where it was that we were just going to step right into year one and we'd be passing on one thirty inch box <laughs> waiting for those wait, waiting for those one forty inch box. Cause we were kind of basing that on um, being invited and hunting some local, some local farms, um, you know, friends, of my father's that had been doing the QDM model for many, many years. And we just kind of, you know, we, we, we thought a little bit um, that we, we didn't really know what we had in the property. Right. And that's kind of why we took it slow. Um, it was in a dog hunting club, okay. which I don't know if that's legal up in Michigan, but most of the South, uh, you can legally hunt deer with dogs. And you basically release them on one side of the property and the dogs drive the deer. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm pretty and sure hunters it's not legal here in Michigan. <laughs> so in this, um, yeah, my grandfather uh, did it all his life. I went on a couple uh, deer drives uh, there's nothing wrong with it. it. You know, it's legal in a lot of states here in the Southeast, but when you have a hunting club that does that, you, um, we didn't really know what they're harvesting because it's very hard. You know, you can determine a buck from a doe at high speed, but can you determine that two year old buck from a three or four year old buck? So we weren't really sure if they were, if they were, you know, just shooting everything, right? which is perfectly fine because that's legal. But, um, at the time at least, but that's why we wanted to take it slow because we didn't know what the, um, what we had in the local herd deer. Yeah. And it's kind of the same way. Um, my, my family, my in-laws own some property here in Michigan that, um, I do all of my whitetail hunting on and we just purchased it, um, 
just over a year ago. So this past fall, okay. 2019 was our first fall actually hunting it. Um, and it's, I mean, it's nowhere near the size of your farm. It's about, I think 140 acres. Um, and there's really only three of us that hunt it. Um, me, my brother and my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, my father-in-law. So we can get pretty spread out with, you know, three guys on 140 acres, but we knew we had a lot of really good potential in this land. So we actually brought in a land specialist, um, earlier this spring to basically walk the property and, and give us some ideas about improving bedding and, and a lot of the things that you do to try to keep deer on your property, give them good habitat, uh, good food sources year round, things like that. So it's, a, uh, I can imagine what it's like compared to, you know, from 140 acres to, you know, let's say even when you first started with 800 acres. So it, it was a, a lot to, uh, to a take in, especially given the fact that we were, we live about two hours away. Yep. So door, door to door, about two hours. Um, that's another reason why we took it slow just because we, it was just time, you know, um, how much time we actually had into, um, you know, going into habitat work. So now aside from just the, the whitetail habitat improvement, what other type of um, habitat improvement are you working on on the farm? Um, what we have really kind of dived into um, the past four or five years is the um, work in the timber in our in our planted pine trees, um, really trying to better the habitat within our pine stands, which are, we, we've got a lot of trees that are 20 plus years old. Okay. Um, and if you don't manage it properly, properly, it can just be kind of a wasteland for wildlife, really no benefit for, for the most part. Um, we really kind of dived into the, uh, timber work and that's improved. Um, I, that greatly improves, uh, birds, quail, our quail population has really kind of taken off. We, we don't hunt them. Uh, the wild quail our, and our turkeys are starting to kind of come back. Our, our turkey numbers kind of have, have, uh, come and gone, but, um, we put installed some, uh, wood duck box boxes, nesting boxes. Okay. Now, as far as the quality deer practices on the farm, what first for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with quality deer management practices, uh, could you explain to them a little bit about what they are and then how you guys practice them on the farm? Sure, absolutely. Um, Quality Deer Management Association. Um, there's a number of cornerstones they focus on, herd management, uh, habitat. Um, and the basic idea is, and of course, it's case by case. So it's not, you can't use one model or format that's going to fit every property across the country. Um, but the basic idea is to let the young, let the young bucks walk, let them grow to, to, to mature age before you harvest them and to really monitor your doe numbers. Um, there's some areas in the country where our area, for instance, we have high deer densities. So we need, so we need to be taking, a lot of deer, a lot of does every year. Some errors aren't that way, but you're just trying to better your your deer herd. Monitor it. Uh, try to provide the best kind of um, habitat as possible. Um, and re really, right now, I, my focus has been on fawn recruitment, um, just to try to counteract uh, the increase in coyotes out there. Um, and some of those. So it, it, it's um, a lot of people think that, that uh, QDMA is just uh, just about growing, just simply growing and shooting big giant bucks. Right. But there's more. But there's more to it about trying to tighten up when your when the majority of your does in your local area go into heat, which means a tighter window for the rut, which translates to probably a better rut hunt, rut hunting, but. What that does is cor that correlates to your fawns being dropped in a tighter window, which gives uh, the predators a shorter window to try to attack them, and, and which translates into a, um, a higher fawn recruitment. So are you guys doing any um, predator control on your property? 
We have been. Uh, we've been doing that really since day one. Um, in South Carolina, the commercial trapping season begins it's, uh, late December, 1st of January, and it goes to the 1st of March. Um, we, we, we've had a trapper come in for probably 12 years now. Um, it's a good time of year. Um, cause you know, you've got the white tails that the bucks, for instance, are coming off the rut. The weight's been cut down about 25%. They're trying to put the weight back on, uh, just having some, some predators, you know, har- harassing them is, you know, affects their well being. And then you have the mother doe that's this, this pregnant and she's trying to put back on weight from being, you know, run around during the rut and she's during that gestation period. Um, and of course that's right before turkey season. So, um, there's all kinds of studies out there right now about the nesting survival rates have just been plummeting in the Southeast, especially. So, um, try to do that then. And then about this time of year, April and May, right before fawns are dropped, we try to get out there and pressure the the predators one more time. Okay. Um, whether we catch them or not, at least we're out there pressuring them to maybe kind of get them off their game a little bit as far as hunting to try to get the fawns a little bit of time to um, get their legs so they can run. Well, it, it's interesting to me that I haven't heard, and I'm sure there's people out there that do this, but I, I have not practiced this um, or have heard people doing this. But like you just mentioned with, recording, um, you know, when deer, you know, kind of when the rut is starting so that you guys have a better idea of when doe or excuse me, when fawns will be dropping. I mean, that's all in my opinion, that's kind of next level type of, you know, deer management for your property, because I don't think that even if you own your own property, a lot of people aren't taking that time to, to really better understand the you know, the habitat coming full circle like that. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's had a, a large impact on our property, but if, if, um, and that, you know, that goes into uh, how many does that you're shooting or not shooting. And I, and I was before this call earlier today, I've been, um, looking at our, um, harvest numbers, um, and our, the number of deer that we've seen, on the stand, all the, all the hunter observation numbers for the past couple of years. And we've, we're going through a, a little issue that we're trying to work through going back since 2017, the past three seasons where our doe numbers have gone up. Um, and that is, that's for that next level, that's causing, um, a larger heat window, Mm-hmm. For the rut to drag on, for more does to go and, and, and hit that second, third cycle because there's not enough bucks to to breed them, and that's drawing our uh, fawn births in in a much wider window. So that's something that, looking at that data, um, we're trying to tweak going into this upcoming season. So, I, I what is your your goal in terms of buck to doe ratio? I think the, the ultimate goal, goal was one to one, and I think that's what what most biologists and will tell you. Um, it, it's that's very, in my opinion, it's that's very hard to obtain, especially at least in our area in the southeast, where you have high high deer density numbers, and there's also um, a large number of hunters out there, um, you know, you know, out there hunting. So very so so very quickly. The deer, you will educate the deer. You're not going to run them out of the area or run them off the property, but you educate them very quickly, which I think turns into the October lull people talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of change the patterns. Um, but, you know, looking at these numbers, our duck to boat, excuse me, duck to buck ratio, we've been gaining one doe per buck for the past three years since, since 2017. We were at a, at a pretty tight number going in 2015. 2016 was good, but ever since 17, 18, 19, we've been gaining one extra doe per buck every year, hmm. which um, it's not the way we want to go. We need to be going down. And I, and I, I haven't really been doing probably the, the, the best job of looking at this data, but we're going to implement some different plans going into this 2020 season. I, I, I think my assessment on that is that starting 
starting around 2014, 2015, we had been practicing QDM, letting the young bucks walk for a number of years. And it only takes a handful of years let those young bucks walk, mature, to the point where we were going through a number of years where we were har- seeing and harvesting mature bucks. You know, mm-hmm. just nice three-year-old bucks, four-year-old bucks, and the occasional you know, five-year-old, getting them on trail camera, seeing them on the stand, harvesting them, harvesting them. So we were going through a period where we knew the bucks were there. We, and we had some history on them. So when it came time during the rut, we were trying to hunt those bucks and we were letting too many does walk. And we were getting probably caught up in these bucks that were out there sure. and letting so many does walk that our doe harvest were down for a couple of years. And it only takes a couple of years for that doe population to increase when they're not harvesting them. I, I think that was probably a big part of it. So two-part question here. One, how many people do you guys have hunting the farm regularly, let's say? Regularly, it's, it, it's my family. Uh, it's my father and my brothers. And we have some extended family as well that hunt. Um, but really, it's, it, it's mostly just the, just the three of us. And, okay. um, but we do invite a lot of guests and friends. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, most weekends, if we drive up there, for a weekend, we're inviting a handful of guys okay. uh, and girls too. Um, so, any given season, we can have thirty to forty different hunters. Okay, but the three uh, of you are, are kind of the mainstays. Correct. Some of those hunters might only hunt, you know, for a weekend, but some might come multiple times, uh, right. especially if they bring some food, help out cooking, sure. help out skinning. They. Uh, and maybe take maybe harvest a doe for us. They will get invited back. Well, that was my next question: is how many doe a year are you harvesting on your property? Last year, twenty nineteen, we harvested. I think it was fifty six does. Um, and we had increased our numbers. We we had increased our goal from the from the previous seasons. Um, but, and I was a little skeptical, a little worried about going maybe too much. Cause that's, that's the other thing too, is that I, th- I think we got a little caught up in, we like seeing the deer and we like going into the, into the later months, of the season, because our season starts October 15th. We're not really hunting until September 15th, but you know, we like inviting guests and, you know, for, you know, around Thanksgiving and December, we're still seeing deer. Well, dad, I, I think this data is showing that we need to harvest more, um, our food plots are getting hit harder. Sure. Um, our dough weight has been going down about 10 pounds. Our, our average dough harvest weight has gone down 10 pounds since 2016. Um, and our farmer has had some issues early on when he's planted cotton, you know, where, where, the, the little cotton sprouts pop up and the deer go in there and just wipe out the sprouts to where he's got to re- replant. Okay. And that's something that we haven't seen before. Well, um, it makes sense that you said that starting in 2016, you started to see the, the average weight of your does decrease. And then you said in 2017, you started to see doe numbers increase. So I think, yeah, just, you know, more deer, less eating, less amount of food per deer. I mean, I think I can see kind of a bit of a correlation there. Absolutely, um, and so that that's something that that, that we are we started started back twenty nineteen, and, we, and we're going to ramp it up in twenty twenty just to try to try to balance um, try to balance the the doe herd. In in all of that, just goes right into if you have too many does, too many deer, um, food. There's less food out there and your the mother doe weight if the mother doe weight is down you know there's been a lot of studies out there mississippi state university is a great resource for this but they're saying now that uh 50 of a of a buck's antler potential potential in life comes from the mother doe um and Actually, it's in, in now they're saying there's actually more than 50% goes into um, 
go cut more than 50% comes from the mother dough because she needs to be healthy as far as during, during the gestation period, uh, birth, and then producing quality milk, and then being able to instill those survival um, skills for those, you know, fawn buck and does. Cause everything, yeah, those, those fawn buck and does, they are learning everything from that mama doe until they're either, you know, pushed off as a buck or maybe they venture off as a doe. So, um, the health and well being of does are just uh, tremendous as far as your herd, uh, health, um, as opposed to, just solely, and that's probably what we were, how we were early on the farm was mainly, you know, just trying to grow big giant bucks. Sure. And just main, basing our success on antlers. Yeah. And I think, especially if, if you have a, a prime piece of real estate and you guys have done a lot of the work to, um, to better the quality of deer, I think it's only natural for anyone to get tunnel vision a little bit, right? And start, you know, not, uh, or, or taking your eye off of the doe population for a little bit because you, you know, you've got all these nice pictures of deer and you've got maybe a year or two's worth of history with, with some certain deer that you tend to put a lot of your focus on. And, and I think just realizing that, you know, being, or having the wherewithal to say, Hey, we're, we're kind of letting this get out of hand. I think that shows, um, a really good eye for, um, you know, deer management in general. I think it does. Absolutely. I agree. And, 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 you know, one last piece to this is that, um, I, I'm still getting the same number of bucks that I have been and in our number of bucks seen hunter observation has been, you know, plateaued for a number of years now and harvest. Well, actually the, the hunter observation bucks numbers has, has plateaued a very good number, but the harvest numbers kind of dipped a little bit down and we have some different theories on that, but one theory I have is that, you know, most of our bucks to harvest during the rut, like I think most people, when we had, we have an increase in does, the bucks don't have to move as much. You know, they're not really out running and chasing around because there's, there's does everywhere. Right. And there's constant does in heat, in a heat cycle. So, and I had the bucks on trail camera, I, I, you know, but there were certain, we, in my opinion, we weren't seeing the mature bucks that we should have been seeing just quantity wise, not necessarily harvesting, but we weren't seeing them, but they're there. And I, um, that's probably the last piece I have to, you know, managing doe numbers, um, from our, our observations at the farm. So taking this one step further, or I guess maybe not one step further, but talking a bit more about QDMA, I know obviously you're you're a member, but this year you and your family actually won an award from QDMA for the work that you guys have done on the farm. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? I'd love to. Um, we were just completely blown away. Um, my father and I attended the QDMA Whitetail Weekend. Uh, it was second week in March. It was actually right on the cusp of the whole COVID nineteen exploding. Sure. It, it, if that if, if that event would have been a couple of days later, it would have been canceled. Whitetail Weekend. This was their second year doing this in their headquarters in Athens. Phenomenal weekend. This was. Um, it, it's now their new. It's their former national convention. Um, Joe Hamilton, the founder of QDMA, um, nominated us for this award. It was the 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 2019 Al Brothers non-professional deer manager of the year award. Al Brothers was Joe Hamilton's mentor uh, as he was coming up as a biologist. Um, my, my father and I were in attendance, had no clue we were going to win. Um, you know, we understand what we do at the farm, but the big picture across the country, I'm sure there's a lot of other people that are doing things a lot bigger and better and have more knowledge than us. So we were just completely blown away, humbled, um, you know, coming up as a kid from a hunting club practicing QDMA uh, to uh, being awarded that was just completely surreal. Um, I think a lot of that probably stemmed from this past uh, fall. Um, we hosted our first QDMA mentor hunt, October of 2019. Um, that was organized by the president, vice president of my local branch, the Coastal Empire QDMA uh, Corey Parker and Austin Seals. We invited uh, four to five 
uh, new and uh, somewhat inexperienced hunters. They were aged from 10 to, I think, you know, early mid 60s. And we invited Joe Hamilton. Uh, Mr. Hamilton lives probably about an hour or two from our farm. I didn't think he would come, but just blown away. He showed up for the weekend. Um, and I think he was, he, he told us how, how impressed he was with the way that we manage, um, just the best of our ability mm-hmm. in what we do there. Um, and, and, uh, that award, I believe stemmed just a hundred percent from Joe visiting the farm, seeing what we do and also hosting that, uh, mentor hunt. So I've, I'm familiar with these, with these mentor, um, mentor hunts and things like that. I mean, and I would imagine that, um, having access to your farm where, uh, you know, you don't have to contend with other hunters, you know, having enough room to get away from each other definitely helps. I mean, did you guys volunteer that or or offer up and say, Hey, we would like to host that. How did that all come to be? Well, this was kind of a long time coming for us. Um, just a kind of a, a quick history. We've had, 17 new hunters harvest the first deer on our property. Oh, that's incredible. Um, that's going back to 2006. And we've, we've had a lot others that just, you know, didn't, you know, just didn't pull the trigger. Um, those new hunters aged from 10 to 65, nine men, eight females. And some of those girls, some of those girls were very young, 10, 11, 12, 15 out of the 17 continued to hunt and continued to buy licenses. So, you know, we, like I mentioned before, grew up in a hunting club, but with my father's friends and contacts, we did grow up being invited to a lot of, um, a lot of different properties and plantations and, and properties just like our farm, um, over the years, uh, throughout, you know, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. So being invited places, we wanted to really kind of share the hunt and share our property with other, other friends and family. Uh, we built a farmhouse in, it was completed in 2012, and then right after a skidding show on the property. That was the game changer. Prior to that, we were staying in you know, local motels, or I was just camping on the property uh, a lot. But once we had the farmhouse and skidding show on the property, really just kind of enhanced the experience where we could invite someone up, um, hunt the property, uh, clean the animal, butcher it up, hang it in a walk-in cooler, have a nice, you know, wild game dinner and do it all over the next day. So that's when, once we had that house in 2020, 2012, that's when we started inviting more and more guests. Cause it was a lot easier for people to come up if they were coming from a hometown, hometown Savannah, drive two hours, they could spend the night. Um, so I had been thinking about arranging a mentor hunt for a number of years. There's been a very big push, um, in America to, as far as hunter, new hunter recruitment, hunting licenses, sales have been, have been dipping down. Um, there's not as many people out there hunting. Um, and that causes a lot of different issues when that happens. So um, once I met up with uh, Corey Parker and Austin Seals with the Coastal Empire branch, um, we started to talk about it and try, and try to put it together. And we found five different people that we either knew personally or we had mutual friends with um, that were either brand new to hunting or they hunted a little bit, but they just, they really needed to go out and hunt Sure. Um, with somebody. Uh, my niece was there 10 years old. We had a, um, a, a young man, 23 years old. His father was there and a couple older guys. Um, so that I, I really didn't know what to expect because prior to that, all of our guests had been direct friends and family or direct, direct clients or people we, people we knew. So this is the first time we kind of opened it up to people that e- even though we had mutual friends, people that we might not ever see again. Right. Um, so how, how was that received for, for some of these first time hunters or hunters who have maybe gone a few times, but hadn't harvested an animal yet? What was the reaction for, for those hunters? They were very appreciative to be um, invited, um, you know, take part in the event. Uh, one of the young guys, uh, like I mentioned earlier, 23 years old, he had he had shot a lot of firearms, had had, had done some duck hunting, and that's about it. Was really wanted to get into get in deer hunting. His father was there as well. His father had never deer hunted and, and also had interest, mostly fished. 
um, he went out and on his hunt, he had a lot of, um, a lot of deer come in early and he just said all, all of a sudden out of, out of nowhere, this, you know, young six point just comes running in, starts feeding, chasing, chasing a couple of does around and heart was just th- thumping, just jacked up and, uh, took the shot, very clean, clean kill, clean harvest. And even a couple hours later, back at the skinning shed, when he was telling the story to us and Joe Hamilton and his father, his hands were still shaking and just, you know, still jacked up. Uh, that was a very cool experience. One, just seeing that reaction, because that's, that's what I love. And, you know, we told the guys, guys and girls that, you know, if they, I explain what our goals are at the farm, but if it's your first year, if it's your first buck, if it's a trophy to you and you're going to mount it, put it on the wall and you get jacked up and, and that, that deer gets you excited, you have a clean shot, take it. If you're comfortable with, with a shot, take it. And so that, that, that was, I think it was a, it, it was a good, a very good two-year-old buck, but I, I was, I was pumped for the guy seeing his father happy. Um, that was a really cool experience. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, shooting your first year or being around someone who, who shoots their first year. It's such a, a genuine emotion, right. To be able to see, I mean, like you said, two hours later and he still kind of had the, the adrenaline coursing through him, you know, just talking about, it. I mean, we've all, uh, have all been there before. I mean, even whether it's your first year, 10th year, hundredth year, whatever it is. I mean, I think, um, you, you still get excited after, after you harvest something and to be able to share that, you know, with his dad, I'm sure, you know, meant the world to him. I think so. He, he, uh, very young guy. Um, he sent me a picture of, um, of the shoulder mount. He, he had it in his bedroom wall a couple months later, already had it up, still jacked up about it. Um, uh, and talking about ways that he could hunt this upcoming year. And quite frankly, I, I would love to have him back at our property. So that, that's, and that's something that's what's changed with me as far as bringing guests up and my hunting is that early on, I will admit that I was a little more caught up in my hunting as far as, as far as my, my hunting during the rut or during velvet season, whatever it is, because with it being two hours away, I can't easily get up there. And once I got, once I was mayor and started having kids, I had less and less time. So I was sometimes in a way, a little selfish to where I knew I had friends and family that wanted to go hunt early on, but you know, when you have a guest and they're relying on you for guidance and where to go and picking them up and dropping them off, it can affect your hunting. Um, and that's what really changed for me. I I think definitely I can look back as a hunter and think about the 2015 when I had probably my most successful or just enjoyable hunting season, 2015. That's when a lot changed for me. And I kind of wanted to direct my approach as far as bringing more people up there, experiencing the property, and um, just sharing the hunt, sharing sharing the land. Now, do you think that? So you said 2015 was, you know, probably your most memorable, your your best hunting season that you that you can recall. Do you think it's something about that that I don't want to say you feel like you reached the the pinnacle of your whitetail hunting because I don't know if there's really a pinnacle for right. for hunting. You know, I think every, yeah. uh, every time you go out is it's, or every season is its own unique adventure. Um, do you think that once you kind of, you know, you, you have a, a very successful year and you saw what it took, you know, the, the work leading up to it, uh, you know, the hours, you know, whether it's archery or a rifle, you know, whatever, you know, practicing, and then it's almost like uh, this culmination of things. And now you say, okay. I know what it feels like. I've achieved my goal. Let's help other people feel this this same way. I mean, would you say that that's accurate? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And you know, I mean, even expressing it right now, I almost kind of feel selfish in a way saying that. But yeah, I still, I still had you know friends up there prior, but I was a lot more focused on on my personal hunting. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think looking back and I've thought this for a couple of years now, looking back, I think that was, those are definitely a turning point for me as a hunter, um, after that 2015 season. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like the enjoyment and 
recruitment, retention of other hunters became more important than than your own hunt. Because at least from from my standpoint, I know that hunting's never going to go away for me. I'm never going to lose the itch. I'm never going to not want to go hunting. So I don't have to worry about, well, if I don't get to hunt this year, maybe I'll, I'll lose interest, right? Where with these new hunters, in order to keep them um, engaged, to, to, to re- retain them as hunters, to, to buy licenses um, again in the future, we need to spend more time with them and kind of getting them to a comfort level where they want to do it by themselves. They don't feel that they need, um, you know, someone to go with. Absolutely. Uh, you know, in, in the Southeast, it, it, I, it might be a little different than Michigan. I'm not sure, but in the Southeast, there is very little for the most part, public, pub, public land to hunt. Uh, the majority of Georgia, South Carolina is going to be private land. So it's very, diff- it's very challenging, I should say for, an adult onset hunter or a young kid where the parents and family, if they don't hunt just to be able to go out and hunt. Um, there's a lot of lottery permits and that's, um, something I, I don't, all of my public land hunting has been out West, but it's, that, that's why I think it's been very important for us to introduce people hunting because it, it's, it's not readily, it's not very easy. There's not very easy access for people. Um, in the Southeast. Um, and you know, and I, and I have a lot of friends and clients that are, um, adult onset hunters, or at least have that itch. They just want to try it. Right. Um, maybe they've been introduced to venison, uh, the right way as far as cooking and prep work. And they just would like to, you know, experience it. Uh, my father, for instance, I, th- I think he's, he, um, he had that turning point way before me as far as sharing the hunt and inviting guests and, and, you know, the, the whole, um, hospitality up there much earlier than me. He himself was adult an adult onset hunter to where he didn't start hunting until after college when some of his peers um, and friends introduced him to hunting, you know, brand new to the scene. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, there, there's all different um, stages in your life when, when hunters, um, become introduced to, or when people become introduced to hunting or, or fishing for that matter. Right. And it's, it's having, um, kind of a support system, right. To get you started to, to bounce questions off of, um, to make sure that you're doing things right. And, you know, I mean, hunting is, I mean, the way, I mean, you can get by with, you know, uh, not a huge investment, but, you know, depending on the season, you either need, you know, you need a bow or you need a rifle or a shotgun, depending on your state. Um, and I mean, those, those things aren't cheap, right? So it it can be difficult to, um, to get some of those hunters involved full time. I mean, it's, it's one thing if you invite someone, you know, to your farm, let's say, and, and you have a a rifle that they can use that's, uh, that's sighted in that just kind of get them the experience, but to take that next step and purchase their own firearm, um, you know, to become proficient with it to where they feel comfortable you know, going out by themselves. I mean, that, that there's a lot of hurdles I would say to overcome for, for some of these new and adult onset hunters, like you said. Absolutely. It, it can be a pretty daunting task where I could see how a lot of people just, just don't ever get to that next step unless they have someone, um, that can, that can help them out. One thing that I'm very excited for, for this upcoming 2020 season is we have just finished up a, a rifle range, 200 yards, um, bench set up to where we can now shoot rifles on the property and not have to go somewhere else or not have to, you know, shoot from a, a kind of makeshift table that we put up in a field. Um, that I think has been, um, that's been very important. And we've tried to cover when we have new hunters up there and, and some of my nieces and nephews as far as to, to start shooting. There's so much that goes into practice. And I've, I mean, I, I, I shoot a lot, uh, even rifle prior to the season, but that's something that, that we realized very, very early on. And we know this, but I think adults kind of tend to forget that when you're, when you're bringing a, um, a new hunter who's an adult, and you hand them a firearm, and you show them how to how to load the bullet, 
and take this take the safety switch off that you just there's an assumption that then adult knows how to knows everything about firearm safety right and it's just it's something that I, we've been guilty of it just not really realizing that we you've got to cover everything muzzle control everything so that's um that's something that we've try to focus on we keep a good number of you know rifles zeroed in so someone doesn't have to have their own rifle and quite frankly if they, if they have their own rifle and they haven't shot it prior to the season we really try to focus really try to get them or actually flat out tell them that they're going to hunt with one of our rifles that we've shot yeah prior to the season to kind of make check that zero uh because our you know some people might not know and that kind of goes into you know you know just talking with someone through that you need to shoot your rifle um, prior to every season just, just to check the zero. So now having that rifle range, we can now do that. Yeah. Um, and they, they can hunt with their own rifle if, if they have it. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, the way it sounds is that if, I mean, well, first, do you guys plan to do another of the um, sharing the hunt new hunter recruitments for 2020? Absolutely. Um, my father and all my father, my father and I, I should say, uh, we left Whitetail Weekend winning that award just really on cloud nine, pumped up. There was a number of seminars, classes throughout that weekend. One particularly was was the Field to Fork, and that QDMA Field to Fork program is just phenomenal. It has really gotten some national exposure. I wanted Dad to sit through that to kind of really experience and hear from those new honors what it meant to them. So we, on, on the way home to Savannah, we um, started to plan out our, our 2020 mentor hunt. Um, we're going to, the plan, you know, pending the virus is September, I think, 18th through the 20th. And the okay. reason why we picked the middle of September, it's going to be very hot in South Carolina, but we can legally start harvesting does September 15th in our game zone. September okay. 15th, we, we can harvest either sex with any weapon um that early on in the season like i said it's gonna be very hot but it's a great opportunity for seeing deer we have not educated deer yet uh they are on their normal summer type patterns yep. and it's, it, it would be a, an ideal scenario for a new hunter to step in the woods um we are looking to kind of branch out and last year uh, the the five hunters all came from savannah all of our hometown and we're looking this year to kind of branch out. Um, I'm, I will be reaching out. I made some good connections with the QDMA headquarters in March with their field of fort program to see if maybe they have some people that they know that because there's a lot of people that have been reading these articles. Um, it, it was either there was an article published either in the New York times or maybe a paper in DC covering the field of fort program and the whole, um, this whole movement of trying to push for new, recruitment and hunters that there's now people reaching out to QDMA looking for ways to learn to hunt and to be brought to hunt. So we're looking to ramp it up. We might not have that many more new hunters just from a management standpoint of having maybe more than five new hunters uh, there. Uh, but we are looking to do it that weekend. And if there's anybody out there that is, is you know interested and can make the drive or coming to South Carolina, mid-state, reach out to me because um, we are looking to, like I've been say, saying, share the experience. Um, starting off with uh, firearm safety, shooting shooting the firearm that you're going to hunt with and not just handing firearm in, in, in to someone that's never shot that particular gun. Um, hopefully have some very good hunts, wild game dinners, and being able to uh, clean and butcher the 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 game after the hunt and yeah, yeah i think that that's yeah it, it sounds like it'll be a, a great experience um you know no matter how many hunters you guys are able to get and hopefully by then this pandemic has started to subside a little bit and we're back to some sense of normalcy you know i mean our stay at home was extended through the end of the month here in michigan so we're going on eight weeks of of being at home. So that's right. That's right. With the kids, I, I think it'll be, I think it'll be a point this fall where it, it'll be fine hunting. I mean, we, we might be keeping a distance from each other, especially if there's some people that we don't know and they're coming from different areas, but I think we'll, we'll be able to 
uh, Han. I never thought that this would affect, um, you know, COVID-19 would affect habitat work, conservation work. But uh, early on in South Carolina, I think back in March, the governor put a restriction. He, they banned all outside fires from a campfire, um, recreational fire to control burns. Um, something to do with the smoke, you know, uh, amplifying COVID symptoms so that we had to stop our control burns pretty early on, which, you know, is perfectly fine. I just, I never would have imagined that, you know, a virus from China would directly impact being able to keep our burn cycle, burning, burning the, burning the forest. Yeah. It's amazing because at one point here, we were not allowed we were, say not allowed, we were, um, it, we were, okay, yeah, we weren't allowed to travel to a second residence within the state. So in, in Michigan, that's a, a very big thing where a lot of people from uh, southeast or southwest Michigan have summertime homes uh, in northern Michigan um, and spend a lot of their time up there. And I mean, for, for me, our um, property is yeah about two hours north of of where I live now, and so literally the Friday before turkey season, that came rolling down that we weren't allowed to travel, and you know I, needless to say, I didn't end up turkey hunting that weekend. Just I'd rather play it safe than than not, but yeah, it's just been crazy times dealing with all this and seeing the effect that it's had on conservation. Uh, conservation orgs um, funding forum is it's really tough to see and tough to watch and you know there's a lot of people out there who are are trying to raise money um, through auctions and things like that for these organizations so I'm hoping that even despite all these banquets being canceled um, trade shows being canceled where people are these organizations are doing a lot of their recruiting um, getting new members uh, with those being canceled, uh, I'm hopeful that we can, you know, still do uh, a lot of good with, you know, with, with what, you know, make lemonade out of the lemons that we've kind of been given this year. Right. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, um, the, the nonprofits in America, in America across the board are going to have a very, are going to have a very, very big hit this year whether it's a nonprofit for conservation or your local, um, you know, homeless shelter, there will be a big, a big hit with lack of banquets and, um, event fundraising functions. Um, and that's something that I've been involved with lately going, going back to March when this first blew up with uh, 2% for conservation being on their, uh, regional committee. You know, I think originally that, that volunteer committee was kind of put together to get certain people in, to kind of fill up the country, to kind of cover their own little region, um, to kind of help out that way. But, but, but with the, you know, just impact that this virus has had, we've all been helping out on a national scale with the contacts we have, the different nonprofit organizations conservation wise to try to help them as best we can to, to try to get through these tough times, all the, all the canceled banquets, and fundraising, there's going to be a, a very big hit um, as far as you know dollars when states match those dollars that are raised for their own agency programs. Yeah, yeah. I just hope that you know we continue to you know just do what we can with with the circumstances, and hopefully you know conservation doesn't you know conservation as a whole doesn't suffer you know any more than than it needs to. That's right. I, I think it'll bounce back and I, I think hopefully we can um, start to open, open the economy back, you know, as, as best as possible the right yeah. way and, um, and move forward. So um, there's a lot of and probably what will come from this. And, and I was listening to, to Lindsay Thomas Jr. from QDMA talk recently on a podcast about the different ways. And I've been watching the different ways QDMA has been and, and, and other or other organizations are doing the same thing. But they're changing the way that they market themselves, try to recruit new members and generate ad dollars by having uh, online raffles and 
uh, QDMA has been doing a um, a wildlife bingo night the past the past two Thursdays uh, that way where I think it's going to change the model to way to, to how we generate funds. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm being involved with our local DU and QDMA chapters. We're trying to figure out how we're going to do our upcoming fall banquets. I mean, can we have them if we can't? Maybe we try to have some contests, like season-long contests, uh, raffles or something to try to generate um, generate some funds for, for these nonprofit organizations. Yeah, well, you know, being a, being a 2% certified company and you being a 2%, uh, being a committee member for 2% for conservation, I mean, we know that there's a lot of great companies out there who are are giving, you know, what money they can, whether it's 1% or more back to, um, these conservation organizations. So if you're listening and you are unsure of some of the brands that are 2% for conservation certified, you should be, be sure to check them out, um, on 2% for conservation's website, where it has the list of, um, partners, uh, business members who are certified, um, and, you know, buy from them because they're, raising money and donating money for conservation. So, well, Mark, I appreciate you taking the time to hop on the call today. Um, I think the work that you and your family are doing there on your farm is, is great. And I think that a lot of people can learn a lot from, from some of your practices, uh, from QDM, QDM practices, um, whether it's, you know, a large, farm like what you guys are working with or it's 40 or 50 acres i think there's a lot of the same um, principles and and things like that that can be applied to to any piece of land that can you know better the habitat and better the deer herd and and leave it sustainable and and successful for for years to come well i appreciate you having me marcus um it's been a um it's been a in honor of talking with you and recording this podcast. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's been a very, <clears throat> very big passion for me, managing for whitetails, um, and being, being able to share the farm with other hunters. And, uh, we were just completely just, like I said, blown away and just, it's still such a surreal moment, e- even having Joe Hamilton to visit our property, but, uh, being, being awarded that, uh, that recognition. And if I could mention one more thing, and, sure. and this is, a. I think a very good resource. It was a great resource for us for our property, and it can be used, you know, on a on a hunting lease or you know if you own the property or hunting leases. The QDMA they have a land certification program, and there's different levels and there's different commitments to it. Um, and basically, what it is, it gives you it gives you an outline and in a management plan. That you it, it, that that you can help put in put in place to where if you're jumping into a property like what we did back in 2006, it kind of gives you a guideline to follow, um, all the way down from you know hunter safety with deer stands all the way down to you know monitoring your herd across the board. So I think it's something that you definitely take a look at um, if anyone if anyone is kind of struggling with um, a very quick and easy and inexpensive tool resource to kind of help guide them as far as what to do. Um, I got on that uh, several years ago. I don't know if it was available in 2006 when I first bought, bought the property, but that, that's another reason why it took a while for us to kind of really understand what we had and to kind of better our management because we just didn't know. Um, so that I, if, if, if anyone's interested, definitely t- check out that land certification program at QDMA. And uh, also, if anyone's interested and hunting, uh, we are, we are looking to put together that, that, that mentor hunt for that weekend, September, reach out to me. Um, cause we would like to continue, continue on with it, make it a, make it a annual event. And, um, you know, maybe even, you know, possibly have two weekends a yeah. season. We'll see. Yeah. That would be great. The more people that you can get involved, um, the better. So, well, Absolutely. thank you again, Mark. I appreciate the time you and your family stay safe down there. You as well. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, there you have it. A big thank you to Mark for jumping on and taking some time today to tell us about all the great work that um, 
that they're doing down there on their farm. Uh, and also a thank you to 2% for Conservation, our partner on this podcast. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. There you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop for your gear, coffee, guiding services, really anything you can think of. I encourage you to follow 2% on social media where um, you're going to see nothing but positive content. Um, So rest assured that it's going to be uh, very positive, conservation-driven content coming out of uh, their various pages and feeds. Uh, Again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Stay safe, and remember that conservation starts with you.